Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast from Fulcrum Strategies. I'm Matthew Hindley from Flatlining.net, and with me, as he has been, is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist, Ron Howergan. Ron, welcome back to the Flatlining Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, as always. Today, we are continuing our conversation on reforming healthcare. This time, we're talking about Senator Bernie Sanders and Medicare. The other one that comes up a lot and was was promoted by every Democratic candidate, except for Joe Biden in the last election, is Medicare for All. And just last week, several weeks ago, Senator Sanders sat, sat down with Kaiser Health News right before he became the chair of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in the Senate. And that's the HELP Committee for short. And uh, he said, "What he was asked, what do you hope to achieve as chair of the HELP Committee? And, um, and what can you actually accomplish? And he finally, and I think he was, it was interesting. He finally admitted that the, he said, Medicare for all, and I'm quoting, we ain't going to get it. And I, I think that that's a, <laughs> that's a success for some of us that work in the healthcare industry that know that we're not going to have anything uh, come like, like that come at least in the next two years. Um, but I think it was interesting for him to, to at least admit it, that he wasn't gonna, that he wasn't going to get that right now. Um, what do you think, um, Senator Sanders might have as a priority since now he knows he's not going to get Medicare for all within the next two years. So a couple of things. First of all, um, I probably have more respect for Bernie Sanders than any other senator sure. right now. Mm -hmm. Respect, not agreement. Okay. I have respect for Bernie because a, he truly at his core believes in what he believes and it's fundamental for him. And he's always been constant on it. Consistent. Bernie doesn't look at at polls or public opinion or any of that. He, he's I think he's one of the least political senators there. And this is a a, a calling for him. Um, now I think most of the other Democrats who talk about Medicare for all know that it's never going to pass. It's a great thing to want to promise everybody free health care because you're not going to have to worry about making good on it because it's not going to pass. And it's a way to score political points by saying, well, the guys on the other side of the aisle don't want you to have free health care. So that first comment. Now, to answer your question, what does I think he hoped to accomplish? I think he's also smart enough to know, like what he's saying, we ain't going to get it. And he knows he's not going to get it. He's still going to push, but he knows he's not going to get it. He's going to look for how to go after what could be an easier target than Medicare for all, which is the big business of medicine. He's going to go after pharma. Mm -hmm. He's going to go after the insurance companies. He's going to go after anything that looks like corporate greed impacting Americans because it's an easier target. And he also believes that, you know, that shouldn't be um, a profit center, that, that companies shouldn't make profit on other people's illness. So he's going to go after the PBMs. He's going to go after big pharma. He's going to go after the insurance companies any way that he can. Um, and he's been consistent on that, too. And he was asked a little bit about that. And he said every year, the U.S. government, through the NIH, spends tens of billions of dollars on research. And he said the, the Moderna vaccine was co-developed between Moderna and the NIH and received billions of dollars of assistance and guaranteed sales. And he wants, and he said exactly that, he wants to go after Moderna, who uh, he said the CEO is now worth $6 billion. And he said all their top executives are worth billions of dollars. Um, he did say that they're threatening to quadruple prices. However, I did see today that uh, Moderna 
pointed out that they, they will keep the COVID vaccine free for people who don't have insurance, which I think is a good, at least public image for them, um, because I know that them and Pfizer have been getting some flack about taking their vaccine private um, coming this summer right once the public health emergency uh, is over. He, he was asked about um, the mechanisms of how some of these are going to get done, and he said, um, march in. Uh, he said where a government where the government could force a company to share its license for a drug uh, that was developed with federal investment. Do you think um, March in is going to be something that we're going to start seeing more of when drugs are developed? Is that going to be a way that we lower the cost of drugs in this country? I, I don't. I, I mean, I don't see it, it gets discussed, but there's an awful lot of um, lobbying that goes against March in, which is why I think they're going to have a hard time getting enough um, bipartisan support because you need it now um, to get it actually through Congress. Um, you know, that's my, my reading of the tea leaves. You know, there's another avenue that they could potentially go after there, and that is, um, and this has been discussed, but not as widely, is to, um, if the NIH is going to use money to help with some of this you know, research, you know, let's take the modernity, mm -hmm. you know, then once the drug is approved, then why shouldn't the NIH be paid back plus interest? I mean, and consider it almost like a, like a you know, private line. equity investment. Hey, yeah, I'm, hey, here you go. Now I take away some of your risk because we know that developing some of this stuff has risk. And think about it. I mean, if the vaccine had been completely non-functional, um, Moderna would have been out a lot of money and, and theoretically could have suffered you know significant losses mm -hmm. so that's fine here's here's the loan and if the drug doesn't pan out or the vaccine doesn't pan out then fine you know we, we'll, we're we're financing it. we lo we lost on that investment and if it does then you know give me back my money plus some which helps the federal budget now what they would have to do in there as an investor is then also have some control over cost um, because the what you didn't want, what you don't want is somebody to develop that vaccine and go, well, yeah, okay, now I got to price it even higher to pay back the investment and the interest. Right. Um, but um, even that's going to be awful hard to pass. Right. One of the other things he was asked about um, was the 340B issue, and I mentioned in the Friday Pulse Check several weeks ago about uh, New York reforming their 340B program. And this is how um, some hospitals get access to drugs for, for a very low rate for some of their low-income patients. Um, the way New York was reforming it was some of these hospitals were going to be losing out on millions of dollars that they normally would have been getting. Bernie seems to be interested in reforming 340B uh, as well. He said that um, he, he took away tax-exempt statuses of the hospital when he was mayor of Burlington, Vermont, um, because he, he didn't think they were fulfilling a responsibility to serve the poor and working families. So I'm, I'm curious what you think um, about reforming 340B and whether or not that that's going to be something either that can get done or should get done. Um, 340B is definitely, in my opinion, a great idea that has been now, you know, significantly gamed. Um, and, and I'm a big fan of, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. Um, these hospitals aren't doing anything illegal, just like, you know, when somebody takes advantage of, you know, when you hear about somebody who's uber rich and they take advantage of what are legal in the tax laws so they don't have to pay any taxes, mm -hmm. they're just playing the game. And, and smart 
people figured out at hospitals how to how to play the game better. So I do think it needs to be reformed because it's not doing what it used to do. Um, I think it has a chance because it's sort of so, you know, it's 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 like you know tax loopholes that when you look at it go oh you know billionaires shouldn't be able to write off their yacht or you know I'm making stuff up. But so I think that one has a chance to reform it and mm-hmm. and sort of get rid of the issue. What I hope doesn't happen is that they do it in the wrong way in some of the rural hospitals who really did need it and were using it for the right thing and providing care to the, you know, under or uninsured suddenly say, well, then I can't, you know, I can't give that drug. I can't infuse that drug, you know, when my 340B pricing goes away. Right. Well, we'll make sure we share that interview so that you can find it too uh, in the show notes for this program. I wanted to go in this order because um, I wanted to end by talking about Medicare. And we can touch on Social Security since they seem to be tied together nowadays. Uh, And as we remember from the State of the Union several weeks ago now, uh, President Biden caused quite a a stir when he said that Republicans wanted to cut Medicare. And as we had talked on the program, we weren't aware of anyone who had said that publicly. And what what came out was that Senator Rick Scott in Florida had a proposal that said all federal legislation sunsets after five years unless Congress wants to keep re-upping it. Well, Medicare and Social Security are part of the words all federal legislation. So that means that you would have to be re-upping uh, Social Security. Obviously, I think it was a bad political moves from, from the president to sit there and extract that to all Republicans when clearly it's one person who has been at odds with uh, the leader of the Republican Party in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, for years now. Um, either way, he made the, he made that comment, whereas, uh, speaker Kevin McCarthy has said that, uh, Medicare and social security cuts are off the table, but even the more leaning liberal, uh, editorial board at the Washington post published a piece that says Medicare and social security need to be reformed and soon. Now they didn't offer a ton of, um, you know, ways they want to do this, but they, they had a few things in here and I wanted to run by you, Ron, see what might be doable and what might actually fix some of these problems that we see with, with how to keep uh, Medicare and Social Security from being uh, insolvent. And uh, one of them was um, Senator Bill Cassidy and Angus King, a Republican from Louisiana and an independent from Maine uh, who caucuses with the Democrats, have been talking about creating a sovereign wealth fund that would be separate from the Medicare trust fund, uh, but could somehow create a future cash flow. What do you think about how that might work? I mean, first, how does that work if that were to pass? And would that then, you know, is that is that the silver bullet to saving uh, Medicare? Well, the thing I find hilarious about that is you find me a um, pool of money in the federal government that has been earmarked for something that doesn't get rated for something else. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, and, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll quickly bow to you because it doesn't exist. I mean, you know, something as simple as the post office, which is not supposed to be a federal budget, but we loan them billions of dollars every year mm-hmm. that we know they can't pay back. It's an accounting game. The Medicare trust fund gets rated. The social security trust fund gets rated. All this stuff always gets rated to, to sort of pay general funds. So this idea that suddenly we'll create this other sovereign wealth fund and that will create an income stream and that will, and that that isn't going to get rated for the general budget. Oh, come on. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I, I may have been born on a, you know, on a Wednesday, but it weren't yesterday. <laughs> right. Uh, 
So, um, Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat, West Virginia, has uh, expressed openness to raising the FICA uh, tax cap, as we talked about previously. And he said he's also interested in creating a quote unquote super committee to hash out a potential deal that could get an up or down vote on the Senate floor. I'm not a fan of anything being done by committee. I wish everything was done on the floor because then everyone has input and you're then you're required to debate with everyone. But um, what do you think about a super committee? Well, so I think, uh, first of all, I think Joe Manchin is finally some putting some truth to what everybody knows and nobody wants to admit. Okay, there isn't a single person in the House or the Senate or the administration doesn't know that both Social Security and Medicare are unsustainable. They all know it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to say it because that's a great way to become the ex-senator from your state. Okay. Right. Well, and that's why they're constantly saying it's not going to be cut, but they know at some point it has to happen. They are unsustainable, completely unsustainable. And they also know that the key is you've got to lower the cost and increase the revenue. That means taxes mm-hmm. and taking away benefits, which, ooh, man, that really gets you the ex-senator. So I think what Joe Manchin is doing, first of all, when he's saying that raising the FICA cap, well, that's increasing taxes. Yep. And, and that has to be part of the discussion, whether it's the FICA cap or some other tax way to increase revenue to shore up these funds, whether it's Social Security or Medicare, that when they were started, we didn't have nearly the longevity that we have now. Right. I mean, so it wasn't even contemplated this idea that people would live to the age that they live now. What Manchin's doing, which in some ways maybe is effective, and I agree with you, I don't like things happening in committee, is saying, well, we can't do it sort of out in the open because then everybody will run for cover and everybody will be looking for a microphone to go, I don't want to cut it. I don't want to cut it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to raise the FICA tap. I'm not a tax guy. So let's do it in committee where we've got some cover where nobody can be pinned down into, and the committee comes out with a recommendation and then there's the up and down vote. Even that with an up and down vote, is going to be hard. Right. Because that means putting your name next to an increase in taxes, which you guarantee will be used against you the next time you run for reelection. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is interesting about when you have someone like that, that, you know, they, they understand that that might be a, you know, a, a political nail in the coffin for them. Whereas then you have Senator Bernie Sanders, who runs on Medicare for All, um, who I think also realizes that he's got to raise taxes for that. I don't know how much he, he talks about that. But as I mentioned in the Friday Pulse check last week, I mean, you look at he constantly compares to the Canadian healthcare system. Many people in Canada, in, in depending on what province you live in, if you're living in Nova Scotia, a lot of people are looking at a 45% to 50% tax rate between provincial and federal income tax. Um, And we don't have that in the United States. And I don't know if I don't think people really want that in the United States. But with the FICA tax, I think with at least with that, it's something that people I'm not sure people really think about the FICA tax until they get their W-2 at the end of the year. Well, yeah, it's it's something that you don't really think about much. It's we know it's there. But, you know, if you ask the average person, how much is the FICA tax? They probably can't tell you. And so it's different (laughs) than but but people. But people, yeah, I mean, but people can tell you what their tax rate is mm-hmm. or what the highest marginal rate is or what the, so it, you know, it's a way to raise some revenue without, you know, saying that you're raising revenue. Um, you know, I, I personally think, you know, things like talking about raising taxes, talking about increasing age of eligibility, talking about means testing some of this stuff. Um, 
these are real solutions to a huge problem, mm-hmm. um, but they're difficult for anybody in Congress to talk about because it's a, like you say, Rick Scott, who understands healthcare, the guy who used to run HCA, the hospital system, Rick Scott makes one comment about sunsetting potentially all federal laws and gets absolutely bludgeoned with, oh, you want to cut Medicare. Yeah. You know, so think about the fear that people have about even saying we may need to look at raising the age of eligibility right. or means testing or raising the FICA cap. You know, and he and, and as I wrote last week, too, he, he went on CNN wanting to trying to defend that. And I will say that was not a very good interview for him. He did not do a very good job of answering how he could possibly be excluding that. And he even said he was even asked, you know, do you shouldn't you add a, a statement in there that says this does not include Social Security and Medicare is like, well, no, I think I'm pretty clear when I say it doesn't include that, except that his plan didn't say that. Um, you mentioned raising the eligibility age, and that's something the editorial board at the Washington Post did too. Um, they said raising the eligibility age to 67 for Medicare, which would then match the existing Social Security retirement age for those born in 1960 or later. If we raised it by those two years, do you know how many people that would knock out of the Medicare system automatically? I, you know, I haven't seen the statistics on what that would do. I will tell you that I've seen some of the actuarial numbers that either by doing it once or by doing it gradually over time, increasing that age of, of eligibility has a significant financial impact for the long-term uh, sustainability for Medicare. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Social Security. Anything you do around that, you know, has huge impacts and is a, is a real fundamental um, change. You know, putting an income or wealth limit on or means testing both of those have a may have a uh, and these are these are not new ideas in one of his last um uh times before congress and i can't remember if it was a house hearing or a senate hearing um alan greenspan okay that's going back a ways mm-hmm. Ch- fed chair talked about these very things and he was the one who coined the phrase you know these are unfunded mandates okay and said, you know, we're going to run out of money. We've got to figure this out. You've you've created a mandate, but you can't fund it. And talked about things like means testing and raising age. That was a long time ago. Um, and, you know, we're still sort of wanting to dance around the same ideas. At some point, we've got to address it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things uh, that the editorial board points, points out is that the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act expires in 2025. That's also known as some of the Trump tax cuts. Uh, they think that could possibly be used as leverage to negotiate uh, tweaks in the payroll tax that could adjust some of these things. Do you think that that's a, a possibility? Uh, of course, that, w- that would mean we'd have to wait until the next Congress comes around in 2024, um, possibly, or maybe it could get done now. But do you think that that's a, a way to get some of these things done? Well, it, it is, um, but it's sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Right. Um, because right now, because those tax cuts, you know, sunset, the CBO is assuming they are going to sunset in their 10-year deficit projections. And so what you're talking about doing is saying, well, if you give us a little more tax over here, we'll re-up these tax cuts. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't help the overall federal budget per se. Right. Matter of fact, it could, you know, you could, if you, you know, re-up a trillion dollar tax cut and get $500 billion of additional tax revenue, the net on that is is not what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So you, you could see that being used to get some of these things done, but then you got to look at the bigger macro picture. 
Um, it's, it's funny. It's when people start talking about sort of nibbling around the edges of this, it, it reminds me of when I was in college, I was a waiter and I worked at restaurants and it used to also always baffle those of us in the food service industry. We'd get these people coming in that clearly had a problem with their weight. Um, and I, and I'm not one to talk. I have a problem with mine. So I'm not, I'm not like body shaming anybody, but we get these people that come in and they would order the, you know, the Swiss steak. Is that gravy real? Yes, it is. Are the mashed potatoes real? Yes, they are. Oh, and you get bring bread with that. Yes, we do. Is that real butter? Yes, it is. You know, and I'm thinking, boy, you've ordered just about a million calories here. And then they go, and I'd like a Diet Coke. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, that really isn't helping. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, you probably ought to think about something. And so when people start talking about all this other stuff, and well, let's do this one little thing, you know, we got bigger problems with that one little thing. Mm-hmm. And until you want to address the major problem, the rest of this stuff is, you know, as a good friend of mine who's a who's a doc said, it's it's band-aids on bullet wounds. Well, we'll have all these linked in the uh, the show notes for this program at uh, flatlining.net or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Ron, thanks for coming on. No problem. Thank you, sir. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget you can engage with Ron and myself and other listeners of this program in our chat, available exclusively on the free Substack app. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.